Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer and producer Michael Bishop. First of all, Wiz Khalifa and Charlie Puth's See You Again finally passed size Gangnam Style in terms of YouTube views. Everyone thought that that wouldn't be caught for a while, but out of the blue, here we go with Wiz and See You Again. He's at 2.93 billion views as compared to Psy at 2.92. Wiz is getting 3 million views per day, believe it or not. And I figured out how much money this is probably brought in to the record label and the artist. And I figured that it's at least $33 million. Now this could be higher or lower depending on the type of ads that are running, when they're running, time of year. There's a lot of different variables in that, but probably at the very least it was $33 million that was generated. Now this all doesn't go to Wiz. This in fact goes to the record label and whatever Wiz's deal is, that's how much he's going to make. And let's say he has a 25% deal. Then that means he made about $8 million off that. Now think about it, 3 billion views to make $8 million. When you put it in perspective like that, it's not all that much, I don't think. Now, the interesting thing about See You Again was the fact that it wasn't even on YouTube when it was first released. It was actually on Facebook for quite a while. And then when they finally released it on YouTube, it only took about six months to hit the first billion. Another interesting fact about this is only 15% of the views have come from the United States. Everything else has come from outside of the United States. So why did it blow up? What is the difference between Gangnam Style, which came out in 2012, and See You Again? Part of the reason why it took less time to get to 3 billion views, or it's going to be 3 billion soon, is the fact that there's 17% more YouTube users. Now there's 1.2 billion users. And again, most of those are outside the United States. There's been a 25% increase in streams in that time period. And of course, social and messaging apps have just taken off. Now, another thing is the fact that this was part of the movie Fast and Furious 7. So there was all that movie support, and that was a huge international hit. So all that adds up to about 3 billion views, and it's still going. The one thing about this that we know, though, is the fact that this is probably going to happen more and more often, and we're seeing big hits blow up to billions of views, billions of streams, and I think that we'll see this happening more and more and faster and faster. Like I say, you're not even on the radar with 10 million views. You need about 50 million to even be considered a minor hit, and really a hit is 100 million or more, and it's going to be a lot more pretty soon. So that puts everything into perspective in this digital age that we're in where whatever you think is a big number, put three zeros behind it, and that's where we're at. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my Music Mixing Primer course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to all my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, a powerful online group, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, another interesting thing that happened, at the beginning of the month, Gibson took over a majority interest in the hi-fi maker Onkyo. What makes this interesting, we talked about it a few weeks ago, is the fact that Gibson is no longer Gibson Guitars, it's now Gibson Brands. And now it has about 19 brands that I could count anyway. It has Gibson, Baldwin, Cakewalk, Sirwin Vega, Dobro, Epiphone, 
Esoteric, which is a hi-fi brand, Integra, which is another hi-fi brand, Kramer, KRK, Maestro, which is a very old Gibson brand, Onkyo, Stanton, Steinberger, Tascam, Tiac, Pioneer, and Philips. Now, out of all those brands, only five are guitar brands. There are some that are pro-audio, Cakewalk, Serwin Vega, for instance. Tascam, for instance, is another one. Stanton Magnetics kind of straddles the line between being consumer-oriented and being pro-oriented, especially DJ-oriented. Everything else is consumer electronics. And we're going to see more and more of this, I think, because what's happening is guitar playing has changed. The idea of playing guitar and what people want to get out of it has changed. So Gibson is diversifying, diversifying in a big way in order to take any hits that the musical instrument business might throw. Now, I would venture to say that most of their revenue still comes from Gibson guitars, but clearly Gibson Brands is not going to stand around and wait to see if that's going to continue, and they keep on expanding and expanding into other related industries. So it's kind of interesting. Look for Gibson to do more acquisitions, although I understand that they're actually a little short on cash, so I'm surprised that this went down. But that being said, you have to wonder if Gibson is actually leading the way for some of the other big guitar manufacturers or MI manufacturers. Only time will tell, but one thing we know is the musical instrument business is changing right before our eyes, for better or for worse. My guest today is 10-time Grammy winner engineer Michael Bishop. Michael's specialty is recording, mixing, and mastering orchestral music in high resolution, and he's been doing it for a long time, having worked for the renowned Telarc label for 20 years before venturing out on his own with his two partners to start 5-4 Productions. In the interview, we discussed Michael's approach to miking an orchestra, as well as his preferred gear, recording in very high resolution, and much, much more. I spoke to him via Skype from a studio in Ohio. Let's get into it so we don't miss anything here. Yeah, geez. Last uh, we spoke, still as uh, chief engineer for Telarc Records. And then along came uh, Concord Music Group, decided to uh, close up the label, uh, close up the production department. And uh, we were all of a sudden out on our own in, uh, at the end of 2008. So um, two of my uh, now business partners, then colleagues, Tom Moore and Rob Friedrich and I decided to start our own uh, audio production company and uh, took, took what we learned as uh, running a production department in uh, at Telarc Records. And so it's basically the Telarc people. It's, it's 5-4, right? Yeah, two Telarc engineers, myself and Rob Friedrich, and one of the producers slash editors, uh, Tom Moore. And, uh, well, all of us have been really fortunate to have have gotten a, a number of Grammy awards for both uh, producing and engineering. And so that sure doesn't hurt. And we're yeah. working still with some of the, the former Telarc artists and then a lot of uh, other artists since. And, uh, you know, just so fortunate to be working across a number of genres uh, between classical and jazz and blues and all kinds of uh, non-classical as well as classical ensembles and things and I mean, like what you saw with uh, the other night with uh, Tommy Shaw and the Contemporary Youth Orchestra. We've now worked on, well, let's see, I think three or four projects with them. Um, we just put a fourth one in the can with them with uh, Melissa Etheridge. Wow. And phenomenal orchestra. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal experience for the, the kids 
that uh, uh, perform with that orchestra. They're, uh, it's the only youth orchestra devoted ex exclusively to contemporary music. So it's a very different experience from all other youth orchestras. I have to tell you that it was a huge amount of fun to watch that. Everyone was having so much fun that it oh, was contagious. Were. Yeah, and it was. I had the biggest smile on my face the whole time, and, you know, that so rarely uh, happens these days. Man, that's great to hear. I haven't seen the show, actually. I had uh, the rough video and to uh, mix sound to, and I don't get that cable channel, so I haven't seen it <laughs> yet. I know what it sounds like. It sounded great, I have to say, and but the visuals, again, the kids were just awesome. It's just so contagious. That, oh, uh, it is. It is. You know. And they, they really do have that fun, much fun on every concert they do, whether it's being, whether it's for video or otherwise. They do quite a few of these concerts a year. They choose one a year maybe to, to record, uh, but they're often joined up with uh, artists like, you know, Ben Folds, the whole group sticks a few years back. That's uh, it, uh, Graham Nash. Uh, that's another one we're working on. So it's uh, it's just an experience that most music students are never going to get elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. You're in the studio there. Is that your studio? Is that is that where you do most of your work at? It's a little post-production room that I have set up, actually sitting in the middle of our equipment warehouse. We have all of our road cases in this space. Um since all of our sessions are out on the road. And uh, so all of our gear is portable. We, we set up wherever we're going, up a control room, and of course the entire recording system. But I have a, a small production, uh, post-production room set up here to do mixing uh, in anything up to 7.1 with uh, ATC SEM 150 monitors. Um, oh boy. It's better than most studios, and I like having a, a room like this that's seven minutes from my house. It's really, <laughs> really a luxury that I haven't been able to have all these years. Yeah, no kidding. That's awesome. Wow, very cool. I saw on your website the reveal SDM process. So what is that? Well, uh, that is the process that we use to get... Um, both to capture the recordings and get it to a deliverable format. Sort of hard to describe because really it, it, is, um, it is unique to 5.4, the, the signal path that we take, but it is a, a just collection of our gear and our techniques, and we put the name Reveal SDM to it, which is Superior, superior Dimension Music. Reveals, reveal... Uh, revealing the, the, the full intent of the artist and uh, superior dimension music, referring to the high resolution that we carry all the way through from the recording source to the final product that we can deliver to, uh, to the artist or to the uh, distributor of the recordings. So it really is a collection of gear, and it's the techniques that uh, Robert and I have been developing over the past, oh, almost 20 years of delivering high-resolution music to the consumer. What is the resolution? The resolution we start with uh, is often up to 11.2 megahertz DSD. Uh, we can do uh, full 32-channel 
11.2 megahertz DSD recording using uh, the merging technologies pyramid system. And in that case, we're using the uh, either the, uh, the merging Horus or Happy converters. We edit in that format in DSD and then need to be able to funnel that down to whatever the delivery format is going to be for uh, the consumer. And often these things are coming out, you know, at simultaneously as like say high resolution PCM download files to uh, full 11.2 megahertz DSD download files on uh, nativedsd.com, or through mm. uh, in a couple of cases they're also coming out as DSD downloads through uh, acoustic sounds in Kansas. So it all depends on what the arrangements are with the artist. and uh, But that's our preferred means of working. We still do a lot of work with the Sonoma DSD workstation, uh, working anything up to 32 tracks DSD there. And in the PCM world, we're working, well, I just did a recording at the Montreal Jazz Festival with... Uh, Hiromi Mahara and Edmar Castaneda, jazz harpist, uh, for Concord Jazz. And uh, that was recorded at 192K on a Nuendo system. Very cool. Wow. When you go to 192, is there any problems with that? Or is it pretty bulletproof these days? Well, it's put pretty bulletproof as long as we're using highly reliable hard drives, like, say, solid-state drives have things formatted so that we can accommodate large file sizes. I did run into the instance on Nuendo recording uh, a full live concert at 192K, and it was a 16-track 192K master. And after the fact, and we were running a backup on a Pro Tools system as well, 192K. And I found out after the fact, and didn't even think of this, why this was a problem, but I couldn't get those files to open up on any other applications to, like, say, boil down MP3 copies of the the uh, reference mix for the artists. I couldn't open it up, like, say, in J River Media Center 21 or in AudioGate or uh, in some other applications to make the MP3s because the file sizes were too big. Oh, yeah chop them up into under four meg uh, sizes and then boil them down. Nuendo and Pro Tools were perfectly happy with it. Nuendo's a, a great system. That was one of my first DAWs. I only went to Pro Tools out of necessity because every project I was getting in was Pro Tools and it was such a pain to go between two different workstations that it was like, oh, okay, I'll just yeah. give in and go to Pro Tools. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and when I get uh, sessions in to mix, for instance, I mixed uh, recently mixed a jazz vocal session that Al Schmidt had recorded at Capitol at 192K on Pro Tools, but I mixed it in Nuendo, so they simply delivered rendered files on all of that, rendered WAV files, so it wasn't really an issue, and that's typically what I request when I'm mixing a project for someone else that started off on Pro Tools, which is often the norm. And even if I get a Pro Tools session in, I'll take it to another room that has Pro Tools and render it out there, disable as many of the plugins as possible because I want to have control over all of those in the mix process and uh, 
just render out the files, make note of what kind of plugins they use, uh, things that were essential to the original project, and uh, use what I need to. That makes sense. Tell me about your approach to <clears throat> recording an orchestra, since I know a lot of people that listen to this aren't familiar with that. They haven't had experience in recording an orchestra, and you've had massive experience. So I'm curious, through the years, has your approach changed? Maybe a better way to look at it or, or to put it is, do you always use the same approach? Absolutely not. And the approach has changed dramatically through the years. I come from a, a sort of a unique position in that the biggest part of my job these days is recording orchestras, but I come from a pop studio background. So uh, I started off in a studio where we were doing, like, say, in the morning, a 45-piece jingle session finish that in three hours, deliver the, the final masters on that at the end of the three hours, jump from that to, like, say, uh, a gospel quartet session with a rhythm section and everything, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, live in the studio with the gospel quartet. And then uh, by the time you finish that up, it's the evening, and uh, usually a rock and roll group would be in in the, the evening. We'd have, a, you know, groups back then, like James Gang coming in, and record. Yeah. So that that was my early experience. I have to say the jingle session experience that I had gotten early on back in the 70s is really what prepared me for being able to do orchestral recordings later on for Telarc. So by the time I joined up with Telarc in the uh, end of the 70s going into the 80s, I started with the the mic techniques that were famous that Jack Brenner and Bob Woods made famous with Telarc, which was a simple three or four microphone setup across an orchestra. So I continued that tradition, but then slowly as time progressed and I'm doing more and more of these orchestra sessions for Telarc, I started developing a, a very different approach on the orchestra. And along through the years, the style of orchestra recording was changing as well with Younger composers, new composers coming along uh, and not recording the old standby classical war horses, uh, we started getting into a lot of uh, music that required a very different uh, approach on orchestras, so that we're now getting more detail within the orchestra. You're not getting so much of a big picture recording of an orchestra on a stage, uh, but rather we're going in for more detail, especially with with uh, certain contemporary composers that really the approach is going to be sort of more cinematic, more of what would be similar in a, uh, a film score recording with an orchestra, except that we're working within an orchestra hall rather than on a soundstage. Uh, but the approach is very similar, a lot more microphones, but it's sort of a hybrid between spot microphones and then the big overall pickup that, that uh, Telarc was so well known for. So I still have basically four Omnis across the front, my favorite being the Sanken CO100K mics, but then that's combined with various uh, ribbon and condenser mics within the orchestra, all determined by the piece of music at hand. And so it's it's a matter of becoming really familiar with the, the score, familiar with the style of the composer, have this if this is a contemporary composer and we have the composer on hand uh we always have a discussion with the composer as to what they want to get out of the piece 
what's going to be important to them in the uh, presentation of the recording of the performance and uh, what I need to do on stage to accomplish that. So it, it does vary from uh, on every single session. The last session, last big orchestra session I did recently was with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and uh, Chorus, and that was with the, uh, the Gluck Orfeo ed Uridici. So that's, that's a live, it was a live opera performance, and we had to capture it across, so it was three performances and a dress rehearsal and a little patch session after the last performance. And it was, uh, as is typical on a lot of my sessions, I'm mixing direct to stereo at the time with the, with the uh, orchestra, as well as printing a DSD uh, multi-track backup on it just in case. Uh, although the orchestra really doesn't have the budget for us to get into a post-production mix. So we're, we're depending pretty heavily on that live stereo mix. And most of the time, it, it is what works out with just a little bit of touch-up here and there. Like, say, a soloist may have to be brought up that uh, wasn't quite on mic, as expected. So you don't use a decatree? No. No, that's, that doesn't really suit what I'm looking for in an orchestral sound. Uh, that decatree, of course, works for a lot of people. I just never found it suitable for what I wanted to hear out of it. Typically, I'm looking for really accurate imaging across the uh, across the orchestra so that you can really reach out and and know where each one of the the people are sitting in the orchestra. That the imaging is really important to me, but then tone is as well. Uh, decatree is typically going to be uh, three large diaphragm condenser mics. Uh, the the classic decatree, of course, is three uh, Neumann M50s with two outrigger M50s as well. Uh, M50s are terrific mics. I've made plenty of great recordings with M50s, but they really don't have the dynamic range that I look for in a modern recording. Uh, the, they you tend to hit their headroom a little quick. So that's why I'm using the, uh, the Sanken condensers, small diaphragm, uh, Omni, that is extremely versatile. Uh, like the M50s, they have a rising high end that starts somewhere around, well, M50s start around 3,500 hertz. Uh, the Sankens, I think, start around 5K or so and, and have a rising high end response when they're uh, at zero degree on axis. Uh, at 90 degrees off axis, they're absolutely ruler flat. So having that variation in response between on axis or off axis, but no difference in proximity, I can just dial in what kind of presence I need by the angle of the, the mic. Mm, right. And so basically that's going to be four omnis across the front. I'll often have a, a an AEA stereo ribbon, the R88, right in the center for the imaging, and also a little help in tone, and uh, then uh, some some spotlight mics that are often uh, either AEA ribbons or uh, Royer ribbons, depending on what I'm looking for. for yeah, yeah, yeah. Color, since they they're each great tools, each have a little bit of a different color to them. And what kind of mic pre's are you using? 
Well, um, most of the time it is uh, Millennia Media, the HV3Ds, or variations of Millennia preamps. That's my first go-to preamp. We also have a small collection of, um, it was a company that I think is no longer in business, a place called Upstate Audio. It was a one-man company out of the Chicago area, and he made some, uh, Matt Lesko makes these um, Upstate Audio preamps that are were just absolutely spectacular. But uh, we only have a few channels of those still. Uh, they are a, a Class A balanced uh, all the way through preamp and absolutely uh, transparent. So mm. I'll often use those for the main Sanken mics, and then Millennia's for everything else. For the R88, lately my preferred preamp for a passive ribbon has been uh, another one-man company, Integer Audio, out of Rochester, New York. And they, he makes a, they make a, uh, the uh, Ribbon Mic Pre 1 which is a, a great combination with passive ribbons. And then we also have a lar large number of uh, active ribbons that are a really great fit with the Millennia preamps, except for some of the ribbon-equipped uh, uh, Millennias, which work really well. So that's a big combination. Easiest to use and most reliable have been the Millennia, and uh, I know exactly what I'm going to get with those pre's. So, Michael... When you're doing a stereo mix and you're doing it live, how are you building it? Hmm. Well, always with the, the front the front mics and then just bring in interior mics as needed. And I'm usually looking over the, the shoulder of the producer who has the full orchestral score. I can't keep a score in front of me because I've got the board. I have the analog console out in front of me and a bit too busy to be turning pages. So I'm watching over the producer's shoulder, watching for where the cues are. We've worked up pretty much during sound checks and rehearsals, having open mic rehearsals, where the uh, spots are that need extra attention in any given piece that we're recording. And uh, so following the score, I'll, I'll bring in what I need to. Uh, I should mention, too, that uh, on occasion, I'm also building a surround mix at the same time. So I'm making a live stereo mix and a live surround mix and popping back and forth on the my monitors uh, between the stereo and the surround to make sure that each is representing the the uh, what I expect to get off the stage properly. And wow. the uh, I can do this because the producer is almost always on headphones. So I'll keep his or her headphones on the stereo mix all the time and, and the uh, speakers are popping back and forth between stereo and surround. Um, so it is a bit of a handful, but it's a technique that I built up over a couple of decades now. So it's sort of second nature. I don't recommend it to many people to try though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds like you have your hands full for sure. How do you approach miking the hall? Well, the, uh, the hall is actually pretty simple. Uh, out in the hall, I almost always have a Royer SF24 stereo ribbon mic out there. It's actually not too far out in the hall. Uh, I've seen other surround uh, miking setups uh, in other, other engineers' setups, and the hall microphones are pretty far out there. My hall mic is pretty close into the orchestra, typically, oh, maybe 
15 to 20 feet behind the uh, the main mic array. So it really isn't very far out, uh, but it is up fairly high, and the angle of that stereo ribbon microphone is pretty critical as well for getting the tone and the depth that I'm looking for. The only reason I have a, a microphone out in the hall is for use in the surround mix, typically. It uh, doesn't have much of a place for me in the stereo mix. When you say the angle of the microphone, what are you aiming at? Are you aiming at the rear of the hall? No, actually, it's uh, aimed in at the orchestra. Oh, I see. You're not aiming at the hall. You're aiming at the orchestra, but it's back. Okay, I see. But being a a cross pair of figure eights, of course, I'm getting plenty of the hall out there. Yeah. I want the front microphone to be coherent with the the pickup of the, uh, the main mic array across the front of the orchestra. And, uh, for the style that I'm looking for, for the sound that I'm looking for in a surround recording, uh, that tends to fit very well, depending on the style of the music. If it's a contemporary piece, I'll get in pretty close with that hall microphone. And then I'm also doing some extra miking within the orchestra for just the surround mix. If it's a piece that lends itself to being able to, uh, pull pieces and parts of the music out into uh, the listening room in the, in the final surround mix, bring it so that there's uh, really active surround channels. I'm not much of a fan of orchestra across the front channels and just ambience in the back. I'm looking for something that's uh, pretty involving and pretty entertaining. It needs to be entertaining, even if it's orchestral music. Yeah, it's more interesting that way, that's for sure. If you just have ambience in the rears, it's it's not exciting to me. It, it never works well for my taste, and uh, and I've been lucky to work on some pieces of music that really lend themselves well to um, to surround. And if if something just isn't going to lend itself to surround, I don't bother. If it's just uh, pretty stock orchestral music and really and all that could happen is just ambience out in the hall there really isn't much of a reason to have surround on it 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 doesn't isn't worth the extra effort and often these things uh aren't getting released in the proper format anyway so uh, if we have something that's really exciting and surround i'll push for a surround release on it and hopefully it gets out there but it doesn't happen as often as it used to you mentioned an analog console is in front of you. What, what is that? Well, we have a set of Studer 962 analog boards that we've wow. uh, had reworked pretty extensively. We go through and uh, we don't do the work. We have uh, a local shop here go through and change all the op amps out for us in every place that they are in there, get the, the response way uh, Far wider, noise way down, uh, recap the whole thing, uh, change out all the, the critical resistors, uh, change the ground plane in it. And they become really pretty phenomenal boards that we can take out with us on, on location. And we have, uh, we have uh, three of them that are actively on the road right now. And uh, like say this orchestral opera session that I just recently did, did require all three boards because I had that many uh, channels going. So I'm running them cascaded together to accommodate the number of uh, mics, which in this case was somewhere around 30 or so microphones. Are you using the pre's in in the boards as well? Oh, 
Nope, I go in through line insert returns. They're, they're the insert returns coming into the line section of, of each module. So it's bypassing the whole front end of, of the modules. And there is no EQ or anything in the path. We're pretty much just going to a set of op amps, faders to the mix bus. And then uh, there's something about the, the Studer 962 mix bus. They've got some nice little transformers in there that give us a, a nice euphonic sound <laughs> that we tend to like. Collective oh yeah by four let's thank those transformers yeah and, and if if i if i didn't have the studer boards uh there's a a nice harrison uh analog mix board that that i like to use i the exact model number of it escapes me i think it's something like an m m something 50 and it's a somewhat portable harrison board you don't see a whole lot of them around but it is a really phenomenal board um and it too has the option of uh, unbalanced outputs or transformer outs and i i really like the transformer outputs on that board as well what's the hardest thing for you to do is there something that when you get to a hall and you, you look around you go oh that's going to be a problem well the, the the things that present the biggest problem are often the things that we don't have a whole lot of control over, and that is just noise. And, um, you know, our world has gotten noisier and noisier. It used to be a lot easier to find a hall that was quiet enough to do recording sessions in, and we're still lucky enough to work with orchestras and, uh, and uh, orchestral ensembles, small uh, chamber orchestras, classical artists that do recording sessions specifically for recording. Um, not a live performance being captured. And so we have our choice of what time of the day we're working in and, and uh, sometimes a choice of the hall. And so um, outside noise is about the hardest thing we have to deal with. Then the interior noise is the next hardest thing we have to work, uh, deal with. And that's uh, HVAC systems, uh, having to knock down everything that we can possibly turn off, uh, including uh certain lighting systems, that sort of thing. Those are about the, the most difficult thing to deal with in a recording session. The rest of it is all, you know, we, we have our plan when we go into the, the session and uh, everything falls into place, but those unknown variables such as outside noise and uh, environmental factors, those are the, the things that usually the hardest to deal with. And uh, then the next hardest thing to deal with is uh, just sometimes uh, the artist's mood. If we're working with, a, a, like, say, a, a small ensemble in a classical uh, field, you might be doing a piano and vocal recording. And, of course, like any vocalist, the slightest, slightest thing that might be off in a mood that day or whatever affects the vocalist so dramatically that it might be really hard to be getting some worthwhile takes that day. And, uh, you know, the artist has to psych themselves up to put themselves into that mood. And a piano vocal recording or, or uh, piano cello recording or, you know, any of these small ensemble recordings are so exposed that every little nuance of change in temperament, uh, the change in their mood, even just the change of... Uh, 
humidity and barometric pressure in the room is affecting the recording, but most especially, you know, the temperament of the artists and what if they're having a hard time that day for whatever the reason is, uh, we we just have to all roll with it and try to make the best of it. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. The difference in temperature, how much of a difference does that make to you in the recording? And I'm thinking more in terms of during rehearsal when there's nobody in the hall and suddenly you have people in the hall. And, and of course, the bodies are going to change everything as well. But does it, the temperature, is that a big variable for you? Oh, oh, absolutely. As uh, the temperature goes up and usually the humidity goes up with it, sound is the sound transmission is slowing down. Uh, things, high frequencies don't uh, remain as clear as what you had in the, the uh, dress rehearsal with nobody in the hall things to get a bit stuffier sounding, basically. And I'll find, uh, like, say, on the orchestra mics with the, the Sanken microphones, I'll have them angled a certain way toward the, the orchestra for the high-end response of what I'm looking for. But typically, when it comes time to, say, we're in a dress rehearsal preparing for a performance recording, for the performance, I'll bring the microphones more to be on access with what I'm pointing at in the orchestra with those Sanken mics to uh, help a little bit of high-frequency boost because I know it's going to get sucked up with all the people in there with the change of temperature. And I may actually pull out a little bit from the orchestra as well because they're going to suddenly sound a lot closer than what they were in dress rehearsal, seeing as how now uh, reverb times have dropped dramatically out in the room with all those people. So I need to compensate for that. If we uh, are fortunate enough to have a recording going on during a dress rehearsal where we're recording with the artist and we're going to intercut between dress rehearsal and performance, we need to make those compatible. So I have to match the sound of the dress rehearsal to the sound of uh, the performance, basically, or vice versa. And then we may also have a patch session after the performance. So the audience is left. We still have the orchestra. We're doing uh, patches. And we still have to be able to edit all of these things together and have the match. So there is a little bit of changing of microphone uh, distances, heights, angles, uh, particularly on the main mics. Not so much on the interior microphones, of course. So are you making the match just through microphone placement or are you adding any ambience? Occasionally, I'll be adding ambience, and uh, I'll often have a, a TCM 6000 with me to help with that. So um, that wouldn't be unusual to be adding the 6000 in there to help with the hall. You asked what was one of the most difficult things to deal with, also the, just the sound of the hall. Not all halls sound great, so we do have to compensate a little bit, both with mic technique and maybe help it out a little bit with the uh, you know, a little bit of extra ambience in places, particularly like say I've got orchestra with a chorus behind it. Well, the chorus is stuck all the way in the back of the shell. The orchestra is extending out into the hall, but the chorus is sounding in order to get articulation, uh, enunciation, all of that, be able to get the lyrics. We may have to be in sort of close, typically with ribbon microphones across the chorus, and I'm going to help them out a little bit with some ambience around them with the uh, with the 6,000 as well uh, and make it match better to the front end of the orchestra as far as overall acoustic space. So 
you know, it's a little bit of sleight of hand, but, uh, you know, these things are all tools and, uh, we use, we use what we need to. I noticed on the, the Tommy Shaw contemporary youth orchestra show that was just on the chorus had handheld microphones and one for every two people. Was that because of where they're placed? Well, it's because of where they're placed and also they're, they're kids, they're young singers. So they don't project very well, especially, you know, with a big orchestra and that is a big orchestra. They're well in excess of a hundred players. So there's a lot of volume on stage. The singers are hopelessly swamped out in the back there. The only hope of capturing them is with handheld microphones. And, uh, so that was pretty essential. I didn't record that concert. Uh, David Yost, the engineer at Cleveland State University, recorded the tracks for that. And uh, it was a really good move that he put a lot of microphones on the chorus. He put a lot of microphones in the orchestra. Again, being younger players, they don't produce, individually, they don't produce the volume of sound and, and bigness of sound that a professional orchestra does. They just haven't gotten to that level yet. And uh, so wisely, David had put a lot of microphones on the orchestra and that came in really handy in making the mix. I did the final mix and uh, editing and overall assembly of the, the audio on this, on that project, on the Tommy Shaw and Contemporary Youth Orchestra project. And uh, so having a great number of tracks on the orchestra really came in handy for uh, being able to put together a, a contemporary orchestra sound because it's it's such a different requirement than, uh, say, a classical orchestra and certainly different from a, a full-blown professional orchestra. And, uh, you know, there's a drum kit in there. The yeah. string basses are not playing classical string part, string bass parts. They're sometimes going between arco and playing traditional orchestral bass parts, but then they're going to what would be a, a pop bass part, but being played on, on uh, string basses. And it's a group of them, like say six bass players. And so that made up the bass parts for this, uh, for that particular recording. And of course, being contemporary music, the bass part was part of what drives the, the tune drives the track between the, the drum kit, the basses, and then Tommy and Will's acoustic guitar parts. Uh, that's what that was the the motor that drove the the tunes, and then the orchestra was all built in around that. Are you hurt by budgets like everybody else? Shrinking budgets, I should say. Oh, absolutely. the The requirements on the recordings have become so much tighter. It used to be that we would go in to record uh, a typical orchestra session maybe over, oh, uh, maybe a five-day period and have multiple three-hour sessions with them on stage, using the stage as a recording studio, basically, and uh, have a lot more time to, to record a project. Uh, now, more often than not, we're recording a live orchestra, most of the things that we're recording are live, but we're really fortunate to still record people in sessions, in uh, you know dedicated recording sessions. But a lot more live projects. The orchestras are almost never signed to a label. Uh, orchestras just aren't signed to labels anymore these days. So an, or uh, an orchestra's budget is coming from within. It's coming from their budget, often from uh, 
they'll have their uh, electronic media fund that they're drawing upon, or if it's a special project, like say, oh, there was a um, project that we were doing last year with the, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra that they had a couple of benefactors that were paying for it because they had an interest in this particular project coming out. And so they had uh, these benefactors that were basically bankrolling the the uh, performances and the recording of the performances and then all the post-production. But we're working within a very, very tight budget. And so post-production time is much less. That being said, you seem like you're so busy. I mean, there, there's a lot of different projects that you just mentioned here, which coming from outside of that part of the industry, I kind of shake my head and I go, I never realized there was that much work going on in that part of the industry. And I'm sure that, that you're, you only have a part of it, but it's still pretty cool. Sure. There, there of course, are different tiers, and we're typically working with well-known, world, world-renowned orchestras and artists. That, that's more typically the sort of projects that we're working on. But we also are working with more regional artists or, like, say, uh, you know, key people out of uh, the Cleveland Orchestra, for instance, Uh you know, princip- the principal horn from the Cleveland Orchestra, Richard King, uh, well, now former principal horn. He He's since retired from that position. But uh, also, you know, people in other key positions with major orchestras have recordings that they want made. And so we'll be working with them. But then there's a whole other tier of work that's going on pretty much out of the public eye of uh, individual recording engineers that are working with lesser known artists. It's pretty much a constant ongoing process of all these recordings being made. And if you're uh, a voting member of uh, the Recording Academy, you'll see an awful lot of these things come up for submission for nominations. So it wouldn't be unusual to have like say 25,000 things that are being, uh, submitted for nomination in across all the various categories of uh, within the recording academy and a lot of those are jazz and classical projects being recorded at this other tier that are just below the radar and trying to get to that point of of visibility a lot of stuff that's what's so cool about what you do is that they still require an engineer they need you in order to do these recordings where on the pop side of things, it's no longer the case where you find the producer and the artist are doing most of the recording. And, you know, that's put a whole tier of engineers, especially beginning engineers kind of out of the business, but that's not the case where you are. Exactly. All right. Last question. Yeah. I asked this of everybody and it's kind of off the track a little bit, but it's especially appropriate because the fact that now you're out on your own, what's the best piece of business advice that you've either learned along the way or maybe received from somebody? Hmm. Wow. Our, the business advice that we got, which when we started five, four productions, we, we, uh, went to the score program, um, which was run by the, uh, it's actually a, a project of, uh, retired business executives. And that was probably one of the best things that we ever did. We went down to SCORE, the local office of SCORE, and uh, all of these uh, extremely experienced business people, they're retired executives uh, that were paired up with us, mostly from advertising and marketing. 
there, there wasn't anybody from the audio field at all there, which didn't really matter because what we were really looking for is how to build the business and have, build a good solid foundation. And, and uh, the advice that they gave was, of course, building a business plan, making sure that, that we had an, a good accountant, good bookkeeping, all of that. And that's been one of the most valuable things to keep 5-4 Productions afloat is having a good solid foundation on that. Plus, luckily, uh, my business partner, Tom Moore, is really good at keeping the books. He keeps the day-to-day books, and then he has a really good accountant that uh, he runs everything by, and she takes care of the taxes and and all of that. So uh, I think it's Tom being a producer uh, made him a really good person to keep track of the receipts and bug all of us for our receipts and the billing and and all of that. Uh, so having that good, solid foundation coming from other experienced uh, leaders in business, that was really important for us to get started. So we didn't just go out there and just try a bunch of things that didn't work. So we've been lucky to be here. We're going into our 10th year now. And uh, we went into this without having saved a penny toward building a business. We were just suddenly out on the street. We had to build something right there on the spot. And we weren't prepared for it. We had nothing saved to, for a business. Uh, we just threw our resources together and uh, both equipment wise and, and money wise and got started. And we were lucky to, with, to be able to, to start with some of the really good artists that we had. How did you get the word out to everybody? Well, uh, we networked a lot. I sent out, I sent out uh, newsletters, both uh, through snail mail, mail and uh, email to a lot of the artists and other producers that we were working with because we also work with other producers. Uh, while Tom Moore does producing a lot of times on our projects, we work with a lot of outside producers as well. And so uh, got the word out as to where we ended up, what we were doing, and uh, all of our business has been really word of mouth. Uh, it hasn't really been through website, a little bit through Facebook, but it's almost all from one artist talking to another artist or an administrator, executive director of one orchestra talking to the executive director of another orchestra or operations manager talking to someone else, uh, musicians talking to each other. And so one thing leads to another, and uh, that's really where it's come from. Uh, we also have been lucky to have had close relationships with composers as well, uh, like, say, uh, Jennifer Higgin, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning composer. We've done a lot of work with her, and she knows a lot of other composers. So we ended up doing work with John Adams and... Uh, J.J. Wright is another one that we're working with currently. And uh, then through those projects, we get to know some of the other artists like, oh, like, say, Arturo Sandoval. So I end up doing recordings with with, uh, him and mixing projects for Arturo as well. So one thing leads to another. And one of the most important things is, of course, your reputation and the quality of the product that you're putting out there because uh, you know all of us rely on those projects that are released as our calling card for the next job to come along. Sure. I'm sure in the long run it's actually better for you to have your own business and to do it like that and maybe a little more hassle, but I think in the long run it's, it's better for you. 
Well, we've all said that we wish that we had done this 20 years earlier, especially yeah. you know, considering that we started at the end of t 2008, right at the, at the bad time. <laughs> yeah, right. The biggest recession in modern history. And uh, and at a time that orchestras were actually losing huge piles of cash out through their endowment funds because of things going through the floor in the, the stock market. So we had a lot of rough rough weather to ride out at the very beginning and doing a lot of small projects, maybe doing, we, we have never done anything on spec and we always get at least 50% up front on a project and 50% on uh, delivery of the project. So, you know, we always have something to work with as we're going along, but it was rough, a very, very rough time in those first years. Not to say that it, is, it isn't still rough because, you know, we're working on projects and we're always looking for the next projects and uh, keeping everybody happy in the meantime. Yeah, and the state of orchestras isn't the healthiest it's ever been either. No, it isn't. And uh, we've seen a lot of changes with orchestras, uh, management changes, their needs change. Uh, re orchestras may not have had a recording program in place and having come from a label background, we're able to draw on our experience of planning projects all the way from ground level onto taking it out to the final deliverable masters, as well as, uh, maybe help out with ideas in how to promote it, how to distribute it, who to hook up with, to get it out there. There, there are a Valuable lot of information. Yeah. And so it's it's good that we've had our hands on all parts of the music business from beginning to consumer, and uh, that's been a nice thing to be able to offer to uh, the artists that we work with. Michael, thank you so much for your time. It was great to catch up. I read the blog all the time, and uh, oh, can't thank you. Many, I can't tell you how many uh, innovations. I've incorporated into to my work were based on some things that you brought to light, uh, particularly plugins and some really good uses for them. And, and, uh, you know, I'll usually jump on them right away. So boy, it's a, just a, a wonderful resource. So thank you oh. so for being out there. Well, thank you. That's great to hear. I appreciate it, especially coming from you. It's well, awesome. To learn more about Michael and 5-4 Productions, go to 5-4 Productions, all one word, 5-4 Productions, that's spelled out. F-I-V-E-F-O-U-R Productions, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 